last week, I got a rather interesting email from my stepsister, Sandy. Now, in the email, she told her husband was reading my book, Marriage in the Eye World, and they're using it for a Bible study at her church there. And I'm going to read from the email. She said, last night, he came to me with a frown, and he found something in the book that was disturbing. And she said, I'm like, not biblical. And Lanny says, no, not that. Just, I didn't know stuff. We should talk about this. So we began to read the pages when we were talking about our family. And he would stop and say, is that true? I'm like, yes, that is true. And this went on phrase by phrase, him asking, is that true? And me answering, yes, he is telling it like it happened. And Lanny gets teary-eyed. I cannot believe you lived through all that. Now, without getting into too much detail about my family history, I've shared a little bit over the past. Let me just say her father, who had three girls, married my mother, who had three girls, and myself, and then they had another girl among them. So I had seven sisters. Messes a guy up terribly when that happens. But it did not take long after the marriage to realize that something was wrong with my stepfather. I couldn't figure it out. I was too young to know at the time, but I just could go, this, something's not right here. And that led to verbal and physical abuse. I refer to it in the book. I've shared a little bit of it over in time. But it wasn't until many years later that I figured out that he was a paranoid schizophrenic. Now that I know what I know and have the degrees and everything, I know what a paranoid schizophrenic is. And he was one, very clearly so. And we heard and saw things that were not there. His sense of reality and reasoning were skewed. It made him try to control everything and everyone around him. And he would get violently angry when people did not do what he wanted and his demands changed often based on his emotional state of mind and his fickle view of reality because you never knew at any time what his state of being was going to be. You never knew what to expect. My stepfather, though, taught me some very important lessons of life. He taught me, first of all, the dangers of emotional reasoning and the urgent need to discern what is true. How do I determine what is true? And I know it shaped me. Things like that damage you a little bit, but they build you up a little bit. And my point is this, if I ask the question, how do I know what is real, I've learned that it must be, first of all, objective. It must be something outside of my fickle state of mind. It has to be unchanging. It not, does not change with my fickle moods or, or my ideals that can change on any whim that I might have. It has to be exclusive. There can be only one reality, not many. And it also has to be testable. Can I verify it somehow? And once truth is determined, here's the issue. And here's the point of what I want to say through the sermon here. Once truth is determined, it leaves us with no other options. We're stuck with it, like it or not. That's what it is. And that seems to be the point of Peter's response in John chapter 6. You, re- you all know the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. He began to teach that he was the bread of life after he gave all 5,000 bread. Uh, which means simply that he's the source of spiritual and eternal life. And the more he taught, the less the number of people followed him. And so you begin to see at 5,000, beginning of chapter 6, and by the end of the chapter, there's almost no one left. It's only 12 people. And those are the disciples that he selected. And he said to them, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you alone have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, Peter is saying that if it is true that Jesus alone has the words of eternal life and is the Holy One, then there is nowhere else to go. That's the nature of truth, like it or not. It leaves no other options. There is no other truth. 
And that leads me to today's why question. The question that was put on the card was, why do we believe that Jesus is the only way to God? Isn't that judgmental and narrow-minded? We will see that Jesus and the early church clearly taught that Jesus alone is the way to God and that the question for us is simply this, is it true? And if it is, there's all kinds of implications for life and how we live. So let's look and break it down a little bit more in response to our question, why do we believe Jesus is the only way to God? First of all, I'll say this, Jesus and the early church made exclusive claims that he is the only way to God. And it's clearly supported in Scripture. For instance, Jesus claims that he's the only way to the Father. John 14, focus on 10, but verses up and around, he said, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how do we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. How? Except through me. Peter claims Jesus is the only way. In Acts chapter 4, 12, and the verses surrounding it, 10 to 12, he says, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, what has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind to which we must be saved. That's pretty narrow exclusive, isn't it? Or how about Paul claims, and just as one of many verses I could have selected in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. Who is that? The man Christ Jesus. John claims he's the only way. Anybody ever heard the verse John 3.36? It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. You getting the drift here? And these aren't exclusive verses. In fact, I have a sheet that has over 100 New Testament passages that make it very clear and argue that Jesus is the only way to God. It's pretty exclusive, guys. I can't get around it. The claim, when it is heard and if it's rejected, is usually rejected for both emotional and sometimes intellectual reasons, mostly emotional. For most, it's simply ignorance of what Jesus said and followers actually said about these exclusive claims. Most people don't even know what they are. They have a characterization of Jesus as one who accepts everyone and every belief. You know, all this diversity and pluralistic intolerance, it all sounds very, very good, and Jesus certainly fits in that category, so they believe. And they believe that because he loves people, he affirms every behavior and every belief that you might have. And when they encounter verses like this, it doesn't fit their characterization of Jesus. And so they accuse people of cherry-picking verses or using them out of context. And I would argue the reverse is true. These exclusive claims are the norm of the New Testament. The problem is there are far too many passages to make the case. But there are also emotional reasons to reject these claims. For instance, when a person reads these verses, a common response is, I don't like or agree with what they said or what Jesus said. I believe in tolerance and diversity. Again, Christ is no way opposed to those things, or they would argue it just doesn't feel right when I hear it, because it doesn't fit my, my narrative. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus' disciples said it precisely. I don't have to like it or agree with something for it to be true. 
I don't like the fact that controlling weight requires dieting and exercise. And you can see that. I would just assume I could eat all I want while reading a book on my couch. Doesn't work that way. I've learned that. I don't like the fact that I have to work to make money and pay the bills. But if I don't, I don't eat. My wife won't give me my dinner. There are many things in life that I don't like or agree with, but they're true nonetheless. There are also intellectual reasons people reject these claims. In his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, Bertrand Russell outright rejects Jesus' claims. I read this back in my college days when I used to go to do ministry on the uh, college for training people for making movies and stuff like that. Anyway, that's where I first came across the book. A guy told me to read it, and I did. And the book is called Why I'm Not a Christian by Bertrand Russell. And in his book, he outright rejects his claims. Russell attacks two things about Jesus' teaching and his moral character. He says this, I do not believe that one can grant either the superlative wisdom or the superlative goodness of Christ as depicted in the Gospels. And here I may say that one is not concerned with the historical question. Historicity is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. And if he did, we do not know anything about him. So what I'm concerned with the historical question, which is a very difficult one. I'm concerned with Christ as he appears in the Gospels, taking the Gospel narrative as it stands, and there one does find some things that do not seem to be very wise. Now, you have to understand when you read the book, we find out Bertrand Russell is what we call a naturalist. He believed that the universe has always existed and everything must have a scientific or naturalistic explanation. So when he comes to the gospel, he has to approach it from that naturalistic lens. And in his view, the gospel cannot be true because they require a belief that something is outside the laws of nature. He has to explain what they say about Jesus' claims, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, and all that pertain to it. And to do so, he simply denies that Jesus ever existed at all. The gospel then are simply fabricated stories by some naive, superstitious, uneducated, gullible people of a more primitive, unenlightened era. And Russell's philosophical bias requires him to reject outright the claims of Jesus, even though the gospel documents are the most well-preserved documents of ancient history. I'll get back to, don't want to say more about that. Also, regarding when we say that Jesus is the only way, it does not claim that every religion is completely wrong. As C.S. Lewis has said, if you're not a Christian, you're free to think about all those religions. Even the queerest ones contain at least some hint of truth. When I was an atheist, I had to persuade myself that most of the human race was always wrong about the questions that mattered the most. And when I became a Christian, I was able to take a more liberal view. But of course, being a Christian does not mean thinking that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they are wrong. As is in arithmetic, there's only one right answer to a sum. And all other answers are wrong. But some of the wrong answers are much nearer being right than others. You see, truth can be found from many sources. But Jesus claims that he is the ultimate truth of which all other is measured by. Let me cite C.S. Lewis again in his book, Pilgrim Regress. He takes the opposite direction than if you're familiar with John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan describes Pilgrim's journey as advancing in a singular positive direction through discovering Jesus. So in, in Pilgrim's Progress, he's advancing, advancing, advancing until he discovers truth through Jesus. Lewis Pilgrim's takes a journey that leads a whole other way, and that is... As for most people, 
they go down many false paths. And he includes in his writing some of those paths being naturalism and psychoanalysis and communism and Darwinism and Eastern mysticism, only to discover that they all lead to the very same dead end. You see, throughout his journey, Pilgrim Creek's returning to the central path that leads him to a simple old lady. Mother Kirk is her name. And there's this chasm that separates him from the truth, from God. And all these other paths he keeps hoping will lead him there. But he goes with Mother Kirk. And the point of his allegory is that the path to the truth takes us to Jesus. And initially may not appear as intellectually enlightened. She, see, he had pursued all these other philosophers and all these other profound and unenlightened things. And yet this simple old lady is the one who says, I can get you there. You see, the only question is, in response to our question, why do we believe that Jesus is the only way to God? The only question that matters is, is it true? Not do I like it, is it true? The exclusive claims of Jesus and the church are scandalous in our pluralistic world, which applauds diversity. But if something is true, it is, by definition, exclusive. Rabbi Zacharias suggests that there are three tests to determine truth or validity of a claim. The first one we must ask is it coherent? Zacharias claims that a coherent worldview must be able to satisfactorily answer four questions. Number one, origin. How did life in the universe begin? Christian has a view that there is a divine creator for that all. And are life in the universe a cosmic freak of nature that is a result of some big bang and long periods of time and random selection? Or is it the result of a divine, intelligent, powerful being who spoke it into existence? Or how about meaning of life? Is man simply a cosmic freak of nature? And if so, it's impossible to determine any objective meaning for life and existence. Each person must discern it for himself, but it's impossible to expect that meaning applies to anyone but yourself. Or how about morality? Without God, there can be no objective morality. That's not to say that atheists can't be moral people. It is saying that morality is subjective in the atheist worldview. If we argue that it is immoral for a 50-year-old man to rape a 10-year-old girl, we're saying that there is some objective criteria by which we can make that claim. So where does that come from, if not God? It leads us to God. It cannot be the culture, and that some cultures have beliefs that we find immoral and unacceptable. It cannot be the individual, and that, as we all know, all of us have this propensity toward great evil. Or how about destiny is the fourth part of the coherency. What happens after death? Do we cease to exist or is there something eternal that continues on? Naturalism says that there's, there's only mind, that it's a result of these electrical impulses that stimulate the synapses in our brains. And that's what our conscience is. It's all in the brain and in that material matter. Christianity argues that there is an eternal soul created in God's image and continues on into eternity. And Zacharias goes on and claims, while every major religion makes an exclusive tr claim about truth, the Christian faith is unique in its ability to answer all four of these questions. But another que response to the question, why is it, we believe it's true, is it logically consistent? Not is it scientifically provable? Science can only evaluate physical properties and physical behaviors and can make limited predictions based on those observations. It's limited in its scope. So I can't ask the question, is there a, a deal with the question, is there a God, directly. It is not, no, I don't like it or agree with it. We addressed that one earlier. But, it's, but not is it narrow-minded to believe there's only one path to God. 
I'll come back to that in, in later. We simply must ask, what does the evidence show? The evidence is based on the reliability of the witnesses. The New Testament documents record the accounts of these witnesses. Every one of you who carry a Bible in your hands, or now it's on your cell phone or iPad, every one of you carry with you some of the most well-preserved primary documents that we have in history. It's called the New Testament. It's called the Gospel. The evidence depends on the preservation of these Gospels. I've argued before, so I won't do it again. I'll just reiterate it, and that is simply this. The New Testament has far more, far older, far better documents than any other book of ancient history. Nothing comes close, and I keep saying this when I say that. Please challenge me on that, because I love to take people through that path. With almost 25,000 manuscripts that differ in only insignificant ways like spelling and word order or missed words, we have by far the best preserved books of ancient Roman or Greek history. You see, God is not going to force you to love him. That's not the way he works or to believe in him. That would not be his modus operandi. That would not be love or the kind of belief he desires. But he does give us ample reason to believe in Jesus if, 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 we're willing to listen. Romans 1, 18 to 20 says this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. All of us have intrinsically within ourselves the knowledge of the existence of God. Romans 2.15 takes it another step further. It says this, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the true law are written in their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them at other times defending them. The very reason that we have a moral oughtness, a consciousness, a nature of right or wrong, where does that come from? God planted it there and gave it to us. Bishop Larry Nesbitt, who for 40 years served in the Church of South Africa, he speaks of God at work in many converts from other religions. He said, there is an element of a continuity which is confirmed in the experience of many who have become converts to Christianity from other religions. Even though this conversion involves a radical discontinuity, yet there is often the strong conviction afterwards that it was the living and true God who was dealing with them in the days of their pre-Christian wrestlings. You look back and go, yeah, God was working. Here's another highly respected Christian leader declaring that not every religion is completely wrong. There is truth outside of Scripture that can be discovered through logic and science and philosophy and other religions, but the only one that leads us into the presence of God is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And now there's a third response to our question. Why do we believe that Jesus is the only way? And that is this. If this claim is true, and I firmly believe it is, and I base my whole life on this reality, but if it's true, it has both present and eternal implications. Let me just list a few. It means if I believe in him, I become a child of God. 1 John 11 to 12, he came to that which was his own. He, Jesus, came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to those who did receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of who? God. 
born not of natural descent or human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. We're children of God. Man, that's quite an implication. It also means that we inherit eternal life. John 3.16. Can you all quote it with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Man, that's simple, it's clear, it's profound. And then finally, it means gives my life meaning. If I believe, it gives my life meaning. I love Romans chapter 5, 1 to 10, and I'm just going to read it for you. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. God's love has been poured into our hearts of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for who? The ungodly. It's me. That's you. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person. Some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through this life, or his life? And not only this, so we must boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Now consider for a moment the premises of most religions. Most religions would argue, do these works, follow this way of life, and you will gain favor with God. Christianity is 100% opposite. For it says, there are no works that you can do to achieve the salvation. Just trust God, ask for forgiveness, and it's yours for free. You have to take his free gift. Most religions say, do this. Christianity says, it's been done for you. In most religions, you will never know, and you can never know, if you've done enough to earn God's favor. Only Christianity offers an assurance of salvation based on what God, not us, have done. Could these two diametrical approaches, religions based on the premise of what humans can do and religion based on where humans can do nothing, are they both equally true? No. Someone must be wrong. And if we believe Christ is who he claims to be, our faith is in him. You see, one of the major problems with considering the truth of something in today's world is the glut of information or the spin that's placed on something. You heard the word spin. We put a spin on it. And we tend to do that on everything. A story of the, in the Economist magazine was titled, Yes, I'd Lie to You. The article analyzed the dishonesty that wrecking havoc on politics and journalism and social media and many other areas of our common life. One expert quoted in the article said, Right now, it pays to be outrageous, but not to be truthful. The article by Zenab Terfeki, I love that name. I was, I was going to name my kid that, but uh, it just wasn't available at the time of the University of Northern Carolina says this, information glut is the new censorship, adding that other governments are now employing similar tactics. China's authorities, for instance, do not try to censor anything they do not like on social media, but they often flood the networks with distracting information. Similarity in post-cop Turkey, the number of dubious posts and tweets has increased sharply. Even I can no longer really tell what is happening in parts of Turkey, says Mr. Tufeki who was born in the country. You see, with things like Google, and Facebook, 
24-hour news program, it's becoming increasingly more difficult to discern truth, and yet it is now more important than ever to be able to do so, and the failure to discern it properly has both present and eternal implications. When we begin with Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, it helps us sort through all the verbiage and all the garbage and all the nonsense and the information glut to get to the crux of what really matters. This morning we have, we've responded to the question, why do we believe Jesus is the only way to God? Isn't it judgmental and narrow-minded? We saw that Jesus and the early church fathers clearly taught that he alone is the way to God. And the question for us today is simply, is it true? And if it is, it makes a difference in who you are and how you live. You see, this email from my stepsister reminded me of what I learned from my stepfather, who had a skewed view of reality. That's the one thing he taught me, is to try to sort through the verbiage and the nonsense and the garbage to get to the crux of reality, instead of being based on an emotional state of mind that I have at the time. I learned that reality or truth must be objective, unchanging, exclusive, and testable. And once truth is determined, it leaves us no other options. Some things to take away from this or this. Number one, many church-going people have been browbeaten and brainwashed by our society accepting the premise that there is no ultimate truth. And therefore, any kind of evangelism, no matter how sensitive or gracious, is intolerant and judgmental. Or at the very least, bad manners. If there is no ultimate universal truth, then it makes little difference. But if there is ultimate truth, we have a responsibility. It is not our job to convert people to the truth. God alone does the converting. God alone works through the miracle of faith in human hearts. However, it is our job to share what we believe, what we have experienced in our own lives, and why we are certain about our faith. You see, advanced degrees in science philosophy themselves cannot lead you to truth. It comes only through trusting in Jesus. The power to lead people to God is given to all who trust in him. Let me go back to the Pilgrim's Regus of Zizla's account. I want to give a quote. I spoke of the simple old lady, Mother Kirk, in Lewis's Pilgrim's Progress, of which John says to her before his journey begins, or early in his journey when he first meets her. He says, some of the country people say she's second-sighted. This is the woman who will lead him over, ultimately lead him over to the truth of Jesus. Some of the country people say she's second-sighted, and some think that she's crazy. I shouldn't trust her, said John in the same tone. She looks to me more like a witch. And then he turned to the old woman and said aloud, and how would you carry us down to the path to truth, Mother? We would be more fit to carry you. I could do it, though, said Mother Kirk, by the power that the landlord has given me. And at the conclusion of the book, after he explores all their options, all their philosophies, he comes back to Mother Kirk, who does that very thing, leads him to the truth. She wasn't intellectually enlightened. She wasn't a profound knowledge, just a simple old lady. But she knew Christ. She knew how to lead him to truth. You see, many laws are, are, are humanly determined and can be debated or changed. If I get a speeding ticket and think that a $100 fine is too much to pay, I can contest it and try to get the law changed. But other laws are not open to human debate. They're fixed in the universe. If instead of getting a speeding ticket, I drive my car over a cliff, the law of gravity will apply to me whether I think it unfair or not, even whether I was aware of it or not. Christians believe that just like the law of gravity, there are 
other ultimate truths about reality that apply to every person who ever lived, including this. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Let me leave you with this question. If gravity exists and you see your son or daughter as parent or friend driving toward the edge of a cliff, blindly assuming their car will sail off in the midair with no consequence to them, is it intolerant to stand at the edge of the cliff, waving your arms and warning them to stop before it's too late? Most people would not call your effort to tell them what you believe about gravity intolerance. Most people would call it love. When we talk about Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father, and we're waving our arms wildly to a lost and dying world, it's love, not narrow-mindedness.